This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Amen. Well, I am still up here. Uh, good morning again. My name is Kyle Corbertson. Uh, if you don't know me, Zach is actually gone this week. He was out at our General Assembly, which is the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination's uh, national body uh, gathering that they have each summer. Uh, and then he continued on from there uh, back to the Midwest to spend some time with family, um, as well as to get away uh, as he is celebrating 10 years of marriage with Margarita. Uh, and so uh, we're happy to be able to give them that chance to get away. I'm excited to be able to be here as we continue on in the book of Zechariah, walking through and into chapter 9 this morning. Um, which is exciting for multiple reasons. Uh, Chapter 9 is exciting because, uh, one, we are done with the whole dream visions that we've been walking through, uh, which is great news. Uh, Two, it's a new section of the book as we step into. Zechariah 9 through 14 is actually written at a different time in Zechariah's life. And so the temple has finally been built. The city is still without a wall. People are coming back, but it is just a different period than we have been talking about. And then Finally, I'm really excited because this morning in chapter 9 is about the coming king. And so as we look at chapter 9, especially in verse 9, I hope that it would be something that would feel familiar to you all. Um, And I don't say that as someone that's naive enough to believe that since we've been walking through Zechariah, each of you have been spending so much time reading Zechariah over and over again. Um, But it is actually a passage that is quoted in Matthew 21 in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so I'm hopeful that maybe that would be a little bit more familiar to you all, having gone through the Gospels on your own time. Um, But just in case that's not even the case, I also hope it's familiar to you because it's also our New Testament passage that we read like two minutes ago. And so if you were paying attention then, it should still feel familiar to you. And if it still does not feel familiar to you, I don't know what else I can do. So I don't really know how to help you out. Um, But hopefully it would still be something that is good for us to read this morning as we see the coming of the king, the praising as Jesus marches into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. There's people rejoicing and shouting aloud like Zacharias says, and it is something that we come and do each and every week in our time of worship. We come and praise and rejoice and shout aloud because King Jesus has showed up. We praise and rejoice and shout aloud because he's coming again. And as we look through this text this morning in verses 1 through 12, I hope that we see the reasons that we rejoice and shout aloud are because we have been made a remnant that has been purified by God himself, that we have been made a people of peace, and that we have been made prisoners of hope. Those will be our three points this morning if you are a note taker. Um, So as we look through Zechariah chapter 9, we're going to read it together. I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. We'll be reading Zechariah chapter 9 starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 12. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus as its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built for herself a rampart and heaped up, dust like, heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be left uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. 
It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. So as we look through verses 1 through 8, we're seeing this coming king, and he's a coming king that's coming for his remnant, and it's a remnant that is purchased and purified by God himself. And so in this section is fascinating. It's describing God marching through all of these cities at the end times where he's going to destroy and judge all these people. He's going to destroy all of God's enemies. And these cities are listed out in an orderly fashion from north to south, if you're looking at a map. And if you're a history person, it's even more interesting to realize that this is actually something that has almost come to fruition perfectly in the conquest of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great marches through all of these cities, he destroys all of them, and yet he doesn't touch Jerusalem. And so when he goes through, it's fascinating because God says here it's because he is protecting his people. Even though they are without a wall, they don't need one because they have him to guard his temple and his people. And yet if you read history, Alexander the Great is not someone that was worshiping God But we are told through Josephus, the historian, that he chooses not to go after Jerusalem because he's actually met in a dream. Before he goes, he says the God of Jerusalem showed up to him in a dream and told him not to conquer this city. And so while he takes over all these other cities, he refuses to go against this God because he's that powerful. And so while we see that this is not fully come to fruition in Alexander's time because God says here that he's going to reign over all the nations, we see the power of God through Alexander's time. We see that he is a God that makes even one of the greatest generals of all time scared. He is a God that when he shows up, Alexander's conquest will be forgotten because it will be so minuscule to a God that's going to rule all the nations, rule all the earth, and come back and claim his throne. It's going to be something that we will all see because we are protected as him, as our wall, and as our safety. And we will see that God comes not as Alexander, who fights for vanity or for wealth or for just power. God shows up to judge the world. God shows up to destroy evil. He shows up to destroy all who are against him. He shows up to destroy all idolatry and sin. It is going to be a complete devastation, one where even though Alexander defeated some of the greatest fortresses of a time, God is going to destroy them even more fully because of their evil and their sin. And as we look this morning, we see these reasons listed out as to why these cities are destroyed. We see first the Persian Empire in the northern half of this this text. You've got Hamath, Damascus, Tyre, and Sidon. These Persian cities, this is a, a people of great wealth. Tyre specifically is singled out because it was probably the jewel of the empire. 
You look at it as a city that is spoken of here that looks at silver and dust as if it is dirt and mud because their wealth has been so amassed that they can do whatever they want. They can build whatever they want. They have built a rampart at Tyre that is undefeatable. They have gone through and all of their wealth is what they put their security in. And so when they go to Tyre, it's actually a city that is not on the coastline, but it's actually on an island off the coast. And they have gone out here and built up these great walls and all of their wealth. There's a little island next to it where they've built this giant temple to their god, Baal, and they believe that they're untouchable. No army can march out here and get us. No ship is strong enough to defeat our city. Our wealth will save us as well as our gods. And yet you see when it says that God marches through, they're devoured by fire. God doesn't need to march along the land. God doesn't need to come by a ship. God can just devour them through fire because he's that strong. Their wealth could not save them from the judgment of the Almighty and the futility of their forces. Their wealth mattered nothing when God's fire showed up. And then he marches again on the people that are scared at this point in the Philistines. This great enemy of God's people, these people in the southern kingdoms, these southern cities of Ashkelon, Ekron, and Gaza. And these are people that did not put their faith in their wealth, but they put their faith in their strength. See, the Philistines are constantly talked about as a people of great warriors. You think back to the times of David and Goliath. Goliath is a Philistine. These people were strong. They could fight their way out of anything. They trusted their own strength and their own abilities rather than trusting in God. And so God marches through, and just like the wealth of the Persians couldn't save them, the strength of the Philistines could not either. And Ashkelon is left uninhabited because that is how complete God's forces are. God is going to judge the nations, and he is going to rule and reign over all of the world. He's going to protect his people, and we see this here in his protection of Jerusalem. And yet, even in his protection of Jerusalem, many of the Israelites might have not understood why they were being protected. See, for many of them, they thought it's simply because I am a Jew. I am a people of Israel. It is my bloodline and my heritage that saves me. And yet, you look at verse 6 and 7, and you realize that that's wrong, because God actually speaks of Philistia and says that some of the people there shall become a remnant to God. They'll become a remnant for our God. They are invited in to be a part of God's people. And so it is not anything to do with being a Jew. God has proven that he is nothing, he is not an ethnic deity. He is not one that protects simply because you are of one race versus another. He is not a God that is confined to these, these things that we believe on ourselves. He is a God that is greater than any ethnicity, than any racial divide. He is a God that is meant to rule over all nations, all people, and all times. He is a God that is going to rule over all the world, and his remnant is not just Israel, but it is the people whom he chooses. We look at how some of the Philistines are destroyed, but some of them are saved. So why are these ones saved to be a remnant of God's people? We see what he says in verse 6 and 7 when he says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. See, so, well, this sounds a little bit odd to us. This is actually God speaking of the pagan practices that this, the people at Philistia did. They would eat and drink the blood of these sacrifices to their gods. This is all a part of their pagan worship. And so God says, I'm actually going to take away your idolatry. I'm actually going to step in and I'm going to remove the sinfulness that you're practicing in order that you can be purified by me so that when the king comes, it's no longer destruction, but it's good news for you. And this is good news for us because we're not Israel. 
We, like the Philistines, were those that are far off in our sin. We are those living in pagan worship in our own hearts, worshiping our own wealth, worshiping our own strength, putting our comfort in the things that we can construct in our own hands. We believe we can save ourselves. We believe that something else is going to make me able to live longer. We believe that something else is going to be able to make me live better. We believe that something else is going to be able to save me at the end of times. But the reality is, it's only God alone. It's only God who comes in and he actually purifies us himself, and it's why we're able to rejoice, that we have been, had our pagan worship taken away from us and we've been proclaimed as his people, his chosen remnant. We are able to escape being burned away by fire like our wealth and our strength will be. We are able to escape the destruction and we are not left in a city uninhabited, but we are brought in to be a part of God's people so that we can rejoice greatly and shout aloud when the king marches in, knowing that we have been purchased and purified by God himself. And that is why we come and we rejoice each and every week for this coming king. But we also come and worship this king because not only are we a purchased and purified remnant, but we've been made a people of peace. And the reason that we are a people of peace is because we're following a king of peace. See, it talks about this king as one that is righteous and having salvation. He is the only one that holds all righteousness and holds the ability to save in his hands. And yet when we see him show up, he doesn't show up like Alexander the Great would have. He doesn't show up in a chariot. He doesn't show up with an army, but he shows up riding a donkey. He shows up in humility. Now, if you don't understand what it would mean to show up on a donkey in this time, I'm going to try to put it in better imagery for you. Um, it's not showing up in the Tesla of the day. It's not really showing up in a Jeep 4x4 or a tank. Um, a better picture would be as if he was to show up in the car that I drive, if any of you have seen it. It is a lovely 2007 Mazda 3. Um, it has a lot of sun damage to the paint job. Uh, two of the four windows don't roll down. Um, it rattles a lot when you drive it. If you hit a pothole, it feels like it'll break in half. Um, eventually, after a hard rain, I actually have to drain the water out of one of the doors because it gets waterlogged and sloshes around a lot. It is this car that is just the classic island car. It is the car that you see everyone driving around. It's a car that anyone can get their hands on. It is a car that you see constantly. And yet no one's pulling off to the side of the road to let me go by them. No one sees me pull up to a place and goes, oh, this guy must be important. No one confuses me with the governor. No one's looking at me from the car I drive and think I'm anything of importance. And yet this is how Christ showed up. The true king of the universe shows up on a donkey, an animal of commonplace. He shows up with humility because he's not coming to march in with a tank and to defeat with an army yet. When he showed up, he came as a gospel of peace. It was good news of peace to all the nations. That is the good news of the gospel. And yet, so constantly, we want to be people not of peace, but we want to fight the world. We want to show up like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we want to wield the sword. We want to battle the culture. We want to fight these people on social media. We want to force someone to understand that God is greater. We come as those fighting and fighting for someone else to believe what we believe, rather than realizing that our gospel is a gospel of peace. See, growing up in Ohio, there's actually a giant billboard on your way to Cincinnati that you cannot miss. It has, in really big letters, it says, hell is real. And I'm always been fascinated by this billboard growing up because it's, that's all it says. There's nothing really to like follow up on. 
just hell is real. And you're like, cool. Like, that's true, yes. But there's really no purpose to that message. Because the purpose, the reality is that you're not going to scare someone into salvation. You're not going to argue them into believing about God. You're going to only be able to see them come to salvation when they come to know the King. When they come to see that His message was a message of peace. That we are called to be a people of peace that are walking around not fighting everyone around us, but we're called to proclaim this gospel. We come not as Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we come as Peter following the ascension. See, Peter follows up with Acts 2, 3, and 4. We see him marching not in to fight the high priest anymore. We see him instead come to the temple and he proclaims the gospel. He comes showing them that there's a gospel of peace, that the king has showed up, that we don't have to fight anymore because he's already won. That's the reality of what we understand. We follow this king of peace. We understand that we don't have to fight because we have a king that fights for us. A king that marched in on a donkey into Jerusalem and fought it on a cross. That shed his own blood so that we don't have to. And he's a king that proclaims peace to all people and to all nations. But the reality is being a people of peace and a world of brokenness doesn't mean that everything goes well for us. See, the reality is that while Peter shows up and he proclaims this gospel of peace, he stopped fighting the high priest, it doesn't mean the high priest stopped fighting him. See, at the end of this message, he's actually thrown in prison. Later, he is beaten. Later, he is persecuted. Eventually, he is crucified upside down because of this gospel he proclaims of peace. You look at Paul, the apostle. He's a man that, from all outward images, had everything for him. He was living the high life before he knew the king. He is a man that is a Roman citizen. He is a social elite. He is trained under one of the most respected rabbis of his time. He's fighting against those that would come against the temple. He's coming to persecute these Christians until he finally meets the king of peace on the road to Damascus. When Paul meets this king, his life changes. He loses all of this outward things that might look to be a good life, but instead he ends up suffering persecution. He ends up shipwrecked and beaten. He ends up imprisoned and eventually killed. And yet Paul is so much more happy with this life, if you read his writings, because he understands that he has a peace that none can take away from him. He now has a peace because he's following the king, the only one who contains righteousness and salvation for him. And it's a righteousness that cannot be taken away. See, we will never come to know this true peace until the end of times. We come following our king, and our king has proclaimed to us that it's not going to go well. John 15, 18, he said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Yes, we are a chosen remnant. We have been purchased and purified by God. We have a gospel to proclaim as people of peace. And yet, the world does not recognize it. The world may not allow us to experience that peace until the end of days when Christ comes through. And that is why we're not only called people of peace, but prisoners of hope. Look at verses 11 and 12. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold of prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This follows up where Christ has come as a king of peace, where he has taken away our need for chariots, taken away the need for the war horse, taken away the need for a bow, and yet we're still prisoners. The difference is we become prisoners of something new. See, Paul speaks of this in 
his gospel in Romans chapter 6 when he talks about we become slaves to sin and now we're slaves to righteousness. Here we're spoken of as prisoners of the world, prisoners of darkness, held fast by the sin and the evil of the world. And yet because this king has come and freed us, we are free to become prisoners now of hope. We're those people that are held fast by the blood of the covenant. It's by the blood of the king himself. See, all of us as the remnant are those that have come to only know this covenant fulfilled on because of what Christ has done for us. See, Christ steps in and it is by his blood shed for us like Hebrews talks about. It was never the blood of the sacrificial system, but it was only looking towards the blood shed on the cross. It is only looking towards the king who possessed righteousness and had salvation, who showed up as our king and won the battle for us, that he has freed us from being prisoners of this world, but we are held fast to hope. Now we are held to hope. Now we are held to this eternal promise that one day will come fulfilled. Because Christ has fulfilled this covenant on our behalf, it doesn't matter about our ability. It doesn't matter about our faithfulness. It doesn't matter about anything but his faithfulness, his ability, his strength, his blood shed for us to fulfill our covenant. Nothing can steal us away. Nothing can separate us from the blood of or from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can take us away from the promise that is eternally given to us here in this double portion. And if you don't understand what it means by this double portion, Isaiah 61 speaks of it this way. It says, When the day of the Lord will be a time to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That this will be a day when you shall be called the priests of the Lord. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. It's this promise that we are given. This is the promise that is our hope. This is the promise that we are held fast to and we're called prisoners of this hope because of how secure it is. Because as people coming under the king, we know that we don't experience these things today. We know that we don't experience everlasting joy in this world. We come as those all too aware with suffering, all too aware with the pains of this life, all too aware with mourning, ashes, and the faint spirit. But we also come as those bound to the promises of God. We come as those bound to a hope that can never be taken away from us, bound to a promise of everlasting joy. And thank God that we are bound to it by the blood of Christ because there are so many days that we don't feel like we can hold on. There are so many days that whatever's going on in our life, all the mourning and the pain, that we feel like this promise is slipping away that we can't hold fast to it, we can't grasp it, we can't hold enough because our strength is too futile. The world is taking it out of our hands. And yet the beauty is that we don't have to hold on to it because we are bound to it by Christ. We are bound to this promise of everlasting joy because of the coming King. We are bound to it where He holds us when we can't hold on. We are bound to it in a way that we are able to proclaim the peace to all nations because of the king and what he has done, that he showed up and won a battle for us, that he showed up to purify our idolatry. 
He showed up to forgive and atone for our sin and to live the righteousness we were called to live. He showed up that we might follow him and understand the gospel. That though we were far off, we have become a remnant of the Most High God. That though we were far off, we were able to see him come in a message of peace rather than a message of destruction in order to bring us under his reign. And we know this message of peace is one that holds us fast as prisoners to this hope that we will one day experience everlasting joy in this double portion. And this is the good news of the coming king. This is the good news of the message of Zechariah as we look forward to the day when it will all be fulfilled. This is the good news that we have because we look upon King Jesus who has already showed up riding a donkey going to a cross. And this is the good news that we eagerly cry out for when we ask him to come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and establish your rule and your reign over all of the nations. Allow us to understand and to experience everlasting joy in your presence. This is why we come and worship our King. Let's pray. Yes, Lord Jesus, we come as those that experience the pains of this world. We come as those that experience, even on a Father's Day, the struggle. God, whether it be struggles in family, whether it be struggles in this world, whether it be struggles at our job, we understand so clearly the ashes of this world. We understand so clearly the mourning. We understand so clearly the pain. And yet we are also able to look to your word this morning and to see that we are bound to an everlasting hope that we are bound to it by the blood of your covenant shed for us. God, might we be reminded and encouraged this morning by your Spirit that we are being drawn closer each and every day to the day that you will show up, the day that you will come marching back in, not this time on a donkey, but at this time to rule over all the nations. And as we look forward to that day, God, might we be assured, as Paul and Peter were, of what, is, what it means to be a people of peace. May we be assured of what it means to proclaim this gospel to all people, to all nations, to understand that we have put away our chariots, we have put away our war horses, we have put away our bows and our swords. But we come fighting only with your word, with your truth, and with the power of a God that has already won, a king that has already conquered, and a king who loved us enough to call us his children. That we might cry out to you, Abba, Father, each and every day, and that we might experience the fullness of your everlasting joy in your presence one day. Come quickly, King Jesus. Amen.